It's good to be here together in fellowship, isn't it? I really hope we don't take that for granted. I think a lot of times, you know, just as life is, we kind of assume that things are just going to continue as they have been. Uh, And I think when we look back to what happened in early 2020, you saw how quickly things could change. And I, for one, uh, will never forget how much I missed just this. And I I wasn't even pastoring here. Uh, I was just the assistant pastor, and Dr. Arnold uh, was doing all that work. I never forget the eeriness of driving in on a Sunday morning and going up to that booth up there because we had just started using uh, the Bible verses on the screens and then saying, hearing Yankee say, we're live from Calvary Community Church and there's nobody here. It was so eerie. And then it was my turn in the evening and I, I remember I did a sermon on uh, the Christian fighter or something like that and it's a real rah-rah message and stuff and I look out and there's nobody <laughs> Just started looking at that little blue light up there, like, well, there's somebody watching. And, uh, but now I look out and I see each one of you, and I, I know your stories. I know the things that God has brought you through. I know the valleys you may be, be in right now. And I just thank God for all of it. Amen? I, I really think we should not uh, let that go. We should encourage one another. I've been saying this because it's been, it's been on my mind. The church is people. It's men and women and children. It's, it's the body of Christ. It's not just this building. And you look at what God has given us in this little plot of land right here. Are we, are we blessed? Absolutely. I thought about it yesterday. You know, you see all that rainwater piling up in the back, and you see those holes with brand new concrete, and you're like, people came together to do that. And it was fun. It was interesting. <laughs> I think we used like 30-something bags of concrete. And I had the little truck that could, you know? So guess who's going to get all that? And then everyone's like, Jesse's not doing any work because he's driving to Home Depot. I'm not, you know, levitating that concrete into the truck, folks. It's uh, getting picked up, you know? Oh, there he is, back from Home Depot, huh? I was like, yeah. We better get the right amount this time. (laughs) I'm going to ask if we can just have the lights dimmed for a little bit. I have a slide prepared for you. Warren, if you could turn these overhead lights off. I want you to meet me first in Romans chapter 1. We're going to do this series. I've been reading this book that was given to me by uh, Aroma Hurd, and uh, Aroma gave this to me probably in 2021. Uh, Steve, if we could leave the overhead lights on so so people can still see their Bibles a little bit, uh, because I've got some introductory remarks here. But there's this book that I've been reading called You and Your Creator by M.J. Teary. Never heard of this gentleman before, and in very, you know, We've got to stay sharp for the truth, and that fashion of mind, I went to his website, checked out his doctrinal statement, it's solid, and it's not a copy and paste either. And I emailed him, I said, hey, I, I would like to do a series on the first chapter of your study guide here, do I have permission to do that? He gave me permission. And there's a couple of quotes that we'll go over today that kind of cover uh, exactly from his book and where he's expressly quoted, I've put it in there, but if you want to write that down on the back of your bulletin, M.J.Tiry, T-I-R-Y. He's got a great book out there. Uh, at least the first few chapters I can sign off on. There's a lot more in there that I've kind of skimmed through, but I haven't read it in its entirety. But I thought he laid out a really good answer to these four questions of life. I thought it was so good that I changed the direction of my message on Thursday. I was like, man, this, this is really good. I think it would be beneficial for us to cover it. As you know, I'm preparing to go to India. I've got 12 days left. I did get all of my, you know, shots and stuff taken care of. I got the tetanus shot in this one and the typhoid fever over here. Uh, The cholera stuff is out. No one can find it, so prayers are appreciated. That's all I'm going to say about that. I would greatly appreciate that, but I'm I'm leaving on March 1st, and I'm coming back on March 10th. Uh, It's a 27-hour flight there and a 33-hour flight back with, uh, with, you know, something with the wind or something. And I'm just like, oh, man, please pray for me. I'm anxious. I'm excited. I, I just want to get there. If I could, boom, and I'm there, that would be great. I'm also a very picky eater. My daughter seems to have taken after me in that way. I just want to tell you this story. I, I, we were in Israel. No, we were in Jordan, actually. The first time I went there, 2018, and we're, I am just totally gassed. Totally gas. You know, it's the first day. I don't know how many of you have been on that trip to Israel, but that first day, 
anything you're looking at, like you're like, yeah, that's nice. I'm tired. Because <laughs> you get there, and it's like 9 in the morning, and your tour guide's like, hello. And you've been up for 20-something hours. On, you, know, you didn't have a great sleep on the flight. But I remember we were at some buffet in Jordan, because on this trip, we saw, we saw Petra, too. And I'm looking at all this, you know, big boy food, you know, Mediterranean selection and all of that. And I just, I thought this would be a funny time to say a joke. I didn't expect what would happen next, which is nobody's, nobody was talking when I decided to give my joke. Have you, has that ever happened to you before? You're going to say something, it's, it's slightly questionable. It's, it's, it's a 50-50, this would be funny, this would not be funny. And I, I said, so loud. I said, man, where's the chicken nuggets? And, you know, people in the group looked at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was so embarrassed. Uh, but I, I'm nervous about, you know, eating over there and stuff like that. I, I may say to Dr. Citron, where's the chicken nuggets, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> but uh, please pray for me in that way. I tell you all that because I've kind of just been doing some things that have been on the back burner message-wise that I think would be helpful for you. I get emails all the time, and some of them, some of them are from non-believers. I had a college student email me a very good set of questions, and he's, he's coming to the idea of maybe there is a God, and if he is real, I certainly can't know him. Well, that's where the Bible comes in, and there's a lot of important things that we can study from that. But these are some of the studies that I think will be beneficial to you as believers. We have to understand that we've got to be ready to defend why we believe what we believe. It's the number one reason I came to college. I didn't come to college here because I I said to myself, I want to be a pastor one day. I came to college because I kept getting asked why I believe what I believe, and my answer was, well, that's just what my church teaches. And when you give that as an answer, you give validity to the argument that, well, whatever this church teaches must be right because there's a variety of interpretation and that's okay. That's, that's not okay. The Bible says really plainly that the word is inspired and it's profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction, in righteousness, all those things, and that this is the only authority in the world. This will never pass away. This is why we have to take it really seriously. And I, I don't want to get real heavy on you right in the beginning, but I do want to ask you a question. Do you know why you believe what you believe? I, I pray the answer is yes. Because there are intellectuals out there who are very educated, who speak very well, who have all the charisma and all of the attractiveness that is to our human nature desirable that will swindle you into a wrong form of theology. And it happens quickly. I'm, I mean, I, I would imagine it happens as quickly as a, like a month. If you were to just listen to a four-part series of a Calvinist message on YouTube, you may very quickly come to the idea that a lot of things that the Bible says are not true, but you're just going to be blinded by confessions and meetings and intellectualism and all that, and now all of a sudden you're putting on these glasses of a theology and you're reading scripture in that way. That's very dangerous, and it can happen to you. If it already has happened to you, that's okay. The past is in the past. Amen. All is forgiven. Praise the Lord for Jesus Christ and his blood that was shed to cover all of our sins. I think of that hymn all the time. Without him, I would be nothing. It's a beautiful hymn. Check it out in your hymn book sometime. But it's a great reminder that we can be deceived very quickly. And these four questions we're going to cover, we're not going to cover all of them in the first um, message this morning. I'll cover the rest of them in the evening message. But they're really good questions that this author, M.J. Teary, was presented with when he started realizing I have some things incorrect. And he had friends in the engineering field that he came from. They were starting to press him on these questions. The first one's a big one. It's going to be, what is the origin of the universe? And you may be like, oh, goodness, I'm not equipped for that. Well, let me tell you, neither am I. But we can see very clearly by the observable universe, there are things that are said about creation, how things came into be, and then there are proven laws, not theories, there are proven laws that would make those suggestions of creation invalid. We're going to look at two of them, and I think that'll be beneficial. And then we'll also cover why is there moral and natural evil in the world? We're not going to get to the natural evil part 
today. We're going to get to that tonight as, as well as questions three and four. But I want to start in Romans chapter one. This is a great book, a very soteriological book, a lot of people would say, but don't let it only be that way. There's a lot of application that we can see here. Verse 19 through 22, excuse me, 23 is very important. There's some things I want you to notice about the description and behavior of mankind in response to God's act of creation, God's bringing about of his plan, all of these things. Verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest to them. So it's not a question of can we know, it's what can we already see that has been shown. And with, if we talk about this for a moment, I want you to think of the atheist idea and kind of this um, <clears throat> attitude of those who do not believe God. They always want to reverse roles. What are the two roles that are being reversed? The one who is on trial and the one who is the judge. When an atheist kind of looks at God, they put God on trial by man's standard, and they sit in the judgment box. If you ever find yourself in legal trouble, and you have a defense, and you've got somebody prosecuting you, and you've got a jury, that, that judge becomes very important. That jury becomes very important. You do not want somebody who would be able to just, through opinion and bias, make a judgment on you that would last the rest of your life. That'd be a horrible position to be in. People have called something like that a kangaroo court, where it's kind of like there's nobody in control except for maybe one opinion and another opinion, and there's one individual who makes that choice. Well, the Bible doesn't operate that way. When God was talking about how you're going to bring judgment against your fellow man, it's got to be by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And then they go before a defense, and then a a deliberation is made. The atheist wants to put God on trial. And I always just find that interesting. That's always the first thing. And it's the first thing because of question number two. Well, if God is all loving and all benevolent and all knowing, then how could he allow sin to enter into the world? How could we have all these horrible things happen that happen? And so they already don't like that there's sin in the world. So they put God on trial. And then as a result of that, they're already set to condemn him. They're already set to take man's standards and apply them upon God. May I say that there are things of God that we cannot understand here this morning? We cannot understand it. And that's why I say with a little shoulder shrug, I don't understand all of the agents of creation, but I can see by observable laws that are on display. What the world is telling me is how things came about is not how it can be. Otherwise, we'd be able to do some things. We could do some things today that would blow your mind. I know I use that little joke about, you know, nothing creating from some, something creating from nothing, and I say, apply that to my bank account, amen? That don't work. That's never going to work. But there's actually a better illustration that we'll get into later about that. But the creation process has already been made known. Don't you think it's a modern, excuse me, it's a marvel that animals produce after their own kind every time? I mean, but yet the world says, no, no, there was this speck of something that became two specks of something that got an idea and said they want a heart, and then the heart was lonely, so it said it wanted a set of eyes, and then all these different things to come about when we can just clearly see two cows get together, guess what? You're going to get a cow. (laughs) And God has creation and intent, and everything reproduces after its own kind. But man wants to come in and say, no, no, it's something different because God is mean, because of all this evil in the world. But Romans 1.19 tells us there, it's manifest. God hath showed it unto them. Verse 20, For the invisible things of him from creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I want to focus on that last part. Why is there a statement about a person being without an excuse. I think this is because at the great white throne judgment, which is the final judgment, after the thousand-year reign, after Satan has been loosed for a season, at that judgment, by the way, if you find yourself there, you you are going to end up separated from God forever in hell. The degree of your punishment will be determined at that judgment. 
But there will be no one that will look at God and say, I didn't know, or I was unaware, so on and so forth. I I, I believe that's why so they are without excuse is there because there is going to come a time where people are going to have to give an answer and they're going to be judged according to their works. And there will be nobody there that has an excuse that will be able to get into eternal life because of a lack of something. Now, a lot of people want me to explain that further and go into greater detail. I can't because this is the simplest form. We're in the simplest form. If we try to break this down further, we couldn't go anywhere. We have to assume, and I think we can assume safely, that it is God's will that all men would be saved, and so he's going to bring about the opportunity for every person to believe. And instead of trying to put God on trial and say how, maybe we should say, how can I help God? How can I be a part of this process so that there won't be people at the judgment, uh, at the great white throne judgment who could have heard from my mouth but didn't? Now, ultimately, it's, it's, they were the ones who did not believe. But I think maybe if we change from unwillingness to willingness, we start to see we have great purpose in this life. Every time you pass out a track, you're giving someone an opportunity to miss out on the great white throne judgment. But even if the fact that the world that we live in and the structure of it, not the societal structure of it, just creation itself, bears witness to the Godhead so that none will be without excuse. Verse 21, because that, now here's man's response, when they knew God, so obviously we're talking about people that knew and understood things of God, God himself, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. I want, to, I want you to take a moment and mark the significance of being thankful and the absolute, uh, what's the word I want to use? Negative impact of being an ungrateful person. You and I know people like this, if we're honest, sometimes we are those people. But an attitude of ungratefulness, being unthankful, is detrimental. And we're living in a world like that today. Now, we're, now let's talk about society. Just think about how the United States is running today on an economic level. It's dangerous. We have this mindset that we can just continue to consume. Consume, 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 to the point where, I think I heard on the, on the radio the other day, the credit card debt, the credit card debt in America just passed, I think, $1.4 trillion. We're on pace by the end of 2030, I think, and I'm not sure about that, that uh, number, on the national debt to be close to $50 trillion. That's going to come to an end at some point. But this, the attitude of we can always have more, I'm not content with what I have now, that defines our country right now, along with other things. But what this verse is saying is, when man saw it and knew it, he was unthankful for it. The beginning of that verse says, they did not glorify him, they did not give him the respect and worship that he deserved, and they actually did something else. So not only did they deny it, they went and physically did something else. Look at the middle of verse 21 there. But became vain. Anyone know what that word means? I want you to think of a can of corn with nothing in it. But it looks so good on the outside. It's got all the labelings. It's got all the you know, identifiers that this is good for you. You pop open that can of corn. You look in there. It's dry as a bone. It's empty. It's hollow. It's void. That's what vain is. But were vain in their what? Ooh, this right here is a great defense for man's free will. Imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened. So we have a descriptor of man's mind. In it are vain, empty imaginations. And altogether their heart is foolish. And it was darkened. Why is it significant, this statement of darkness? Well, we'll look at that in a moment. Professing themselves to be wise, <laughs> I got to chuckle at that. Is that not the hallmark of intellectualism today? Oh, wow. Doctor, sir, master, professor, blah, 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 so-and-so. And then everyone just takes them as, oh, that's fact. I don't say this as a political statement, but there were a lot of things that were being pushed to science in the last four years that have come to be false. 
And people in their pseudo-wisdom restricted certain things that people could say with their free speech because at their time, their wisdom was dominant. Our first president, George Washington, he got sick. The wisdom of the day was, get the blood out. He died. That's not a good thing. (laughs) But at the time, that was, wow, that's how it was. Think about this for a moment. In the Civil War, even as early as the Civil War, when people had to be operated on, they still weren't put to sleep. Can you imagine going into a major surgery in 18-whatever, and they pat your head, and they're like, you could do it. <laughs> yeah, bite on this stick. No, no, I'll die. You know, I'll, We're good. But then you look at how God chose to do the creation of woman. He put, what did he do? He put Adam to sleep. He didn't go, Adam, bite down on this stick. <laughs> There's a lot of marriage jokes going on in my mind right now, and I'm just going <laughs> to let that go. Amen. God knew what he was doing. It takes man a long time to catch up. There's a lot of theories out there that the Bible disproves, but people already say that this is, this is, this is nothing. This is a collection of books that was written by man, and there's no historical accuracy to it. If you look in the archaeological field, the Bible still says things that are true, and archaeology has to catch up to it. They'll make, so you study the city of Lachish. Go, go Google that. And that's a really interesting discovery. People would say, well, the Bible's not true because they said this siege by Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. By the way, you want to remember that guy's name? Snack on a rib. You got it. You'll get it figured out. They say, because we have all these other records of places that he went, but this one's in the Bible and we don't have any record of it. The Bible's false. It's not true. Oh, they just kept digging. And they found a huge room with four square walls there. And on it was depicted the same battle that was described and the siege that was described in the Bible. Bingo. Even things about David in secular history have been proven by the Bible. I don't like the idea of, well, we need to go with the secular route to prove the Bible. Let's just let God say what he says, amen? And let the world catch up. But we know the world's going to reject. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So not only is their heart described as foolish and darkened, and the things that they think of as vain, empty, they themselves are described as fools. And change the glory of the uncorruptible God. This is another very important word, uncorruptible. This is the description, except it's incorruptible, of our new nature. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this corruption must put on incorruption. Talking about our resurrected body. This is also speaking about This is the very nature of God. It cannot be corrupted. Yet the atheist starts with the viewpoint that God is corrupt. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. In modern video games today, we see the very... Same things that we saw back in ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, all these places, this fascination with the merging between the body of a man and the body of the creature. Just We were at Bush Gardens the other day. You know, we're going on the little safari. Remy is just having a blast. By the way, I think she learned by one of the um, gorillas that she saw, she learned how to pick her nose. I'm not even kidding. I saw the gorilla do it. I was like, ew. And Remy goes, I was like, no, come on. We can't, we can't start that. <laughs> anyway, we were traveling through, you know, the, they have that little safari train and all that. And you see the rhinos and all this stuff. And we passed by Montu, which is that big blue and yellow roller coaster there. And in the description, the conductor's talking about it. And he basically says, you know, this is an homage. This is a reference to the Egyptian god who had, his name was Montu. I don't remember what his powers are or whatever that they said, but he had the body of a man and the head of an eagle or a hawk. And you look and you go back to Molech, which was a, a, a modern abortion center for children that had already been born as a sacrifice. It was the body of a man 
and the head of a bull. All these different things. You see, why is that the fascination? That's all man can think of. That's all that he can come up with. In all the entertainment today, we're starting to see these different things come up. And people make idols to them, and they have power and praise to them. And that's a very dangerous thing. Why is it dangerous? Because it replaces God's design. We're not supposed to take the body of humans and the body of animals and mix them together. Those things stay separate. But man thinks of abomination continually. As Gary had just pointed out earlier, the the heart of man was continually evil. I talked about darkness there for a moment. I want you to look in John chapter 1, and then we're going to get to the slides here. (coughs) John chapter 1. I'm sorry, John chapter 3, excuse me. John chapter 3. We're going to skip verses 16 and 17. And we're going to look at verse 19. Oh, I'm sorry, Robert. I had this pack turned off. I stopped using it for one week and I forget how to use it. (laughs) All right, verse 19. Let's take a look at this for a moment. And this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world and men loved darkness rather than light. And we don't have to speculate as to why this is. The Bible tells us Jesus tells us, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, and his uh, excuse me, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. So light comes into the world earlier. Look in uh, chapter one. Now we have a description of this. John 1 in verse 9. Verses 6 through 8 talk about John the Baptist. He was not that light. He came to bear witness to the light. You'll notice in your translation, if it's KJV, that L is capital in light. We're talking about a description for somebody. Verse 9, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He, we're talking about Jesus here, was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. And you see when Jesus is uh, speaking to Nicodemus there in chapter 3, the reason why there was a lack of reception on man's part is because man is inherently evil. Now, this doesn't mean that man cannot come to a change of mind in which he could see the gospel message, the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of God's love um, shown to him, and therefore repent, which means to change his mind with faith in Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean man can't do that. But the statistics are low as man is sinful. And that's just the truth of it. And if we, we, we start with this understanding that man is wicked, God is righteous, and we have a lack of knowledge, it's a much more humbling position to start for learning. I have been blessed with great students. I don't know if this will ever happen, but it might. There may be a student who comes into my class who's not set on learning. They're set on being the teacher. They're set on being the one who teaches the educator. And in their mind, they're already against reception of truth. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to understand everything, but you have to be willing to process everything. You have to go through different sets of information and filter them through and find out, does this match up with what God has already said, or is it false and therefore we discard? I read countless hours. I read. And I read different positions, and I read different ideas of who God is. It's not because... I'm bored and I don't have anything else to do. I want to know, how, does, how can I use the Word of God to answer this idea of man? I think that's what made Dr. Lindstrom so great. He, was, he knew all the arguments, but that wasn't his strength. He knew the Word. And there's power in the Word. And therefore, when he gave a response to somebody, he's not just saying, oh, this is the idea of Dr. Hank Lindstrom. He's saying, I, as God's messenger, bear you the word, and you got to deal with that. Now, people don't like that, and to that I say tough. 
That's too bad. But the word says what it says. I'm bound by it. But if I don't know what man's side is, how can I be able to use the word? Otherwise, I just become a fanatic. And there is a difference between a disciple and a fanatic. Somebody who just is, is out there and they don't know why they believe, but they're very loud and boisterous and kind of just draw all the attention to their devotion, that person gets shot down real quick. Real quick. Because all you have to do is get into an emotional argument with them, and the next thing you know, they're falling apart. But a disciple, we know what it is to be a disciple. Meekness, humility, love for the Lord. That doesn't sound like a fanatic. You look at football today, you think anything that happens to their team that's negative, all this, it's all rigged, it's all scripted. And they don't want to look at the facts, but that's what a fanatic does. They just blindly follow. We're not blindly following Jesus, amen? We know a lot about him and what he said. So we use that to answer questions like this. If you're taking notes, now's the time to get that pencil going, get that pen, you know, check it out. I've had so many pens recently that just don't write. It's been real tough, you know? Pray for me. Four questions of life. The first one here, the first question is, what is the origin of the universe? Well, I want you to go to Genesis 1.1, right there in the very beginning of your Bible. You already know what it says, but we're going to have a discussion about some things here. In this question, there's God's answer, and then there is man's answer, and there are two premises in man's answer. Two solutions, or uh, excuse me, two conclusions that man must accept as they deny God's answer. Genesis 1.1, this is God's answer. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Take a look on the screen here. Simply put, there was a point in time called the beginning when time began. Time is then a part of creation. You and I are limited by this. Okay, We are limited by time. Time is passing right now. Right now we are in the present. What I said in a moment is in the past, and what I'm yet to say is in the future. We cannot stop that. We cannot stop it. It's a part of creation. Time denotes the separation of one event from another in history. As time goes on, it's making history. The physical universe, and you may hear that and think you know what that means, but let's just make sure we define it. The things that we see physically in the universe, not just man's creation like the pews that we're sitting in this building here and all that, but animals, nature, the universe as a whole, all of these physical things is actually space, a space, matter, and time continuum. These things are all moving together, but they're on the track of time. Can we think of that for a moment, that all creation is kind of like a big choo-choo train, and the tracks that are there are time, and it's just it's pulling forward. There was a point where this track was not. And in Genesis 1-1, we see things being spoken into existence by an infinite, all-powerful being who is called God. He spoke these things into existence and as a part of that created heaven and earth. Time itself is a three-part thing consisting of past, present, and future. Genesis 1-1 goes back to when time did not have a past. It started when God started to act. An eternal beating, excuse me, being started to act and time began. Now, the atheist is going to say, that requires too much faith. Now, okay, they can say that, but they've got to have a response that is believable and can be proven by what we already observe. Do you understand that? It's not enough to say, boo-hoo, I don't like that. You've got to have a response. And this is where my heart burns for, for, for young people that are on TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram reels and all this stuff, and they're just receiving information, and they go out and become the fanatics. I don't believe that God created. Okay, well, if you're really going to be in that position, young man, you're really going to be in that position, you better be ready to have an answer for what it is. Because if you die rejecting God, which in turn is rejecting Jesus, you're going to stand and have to give an account. Do we see how serious this is now? We shouldn't be looking at this just saying, oh, kids will be kids. There is an agenda by the devil to destroy this upcoming generation, and it's already happening. It's already happening. Our poor kids, man. Our poor kids. But it's not too late. 
We can still teach them and train them up. And I, I, I think if you're, if you're a parent here today, you have a wonderful opportunity to train your kids in the Word. And yes, it'll be hard, and you're going to have to sit down and go, there are a lot of things I don't know, but you know what? The Lord knows, and I'm going to trust in Him. I can't wait to teach my daughter about all the biblical things, but when the math starts stuff, when that stuff starts, guess what? We don't need math to go to heaven. <laughs> okay, I'm joking, I'm joking. Please don't take me out of context. Jesse said... <laughs> no. But the things that I do know, I, I'm, I'm not only willing to teach, I want to teach those things. I'm ready to do it. And I think that, that's how we fix what's coming up. But we also have to realize, too, folks, that the world's just continuing on a downward trend. I was thinking about this today. I was driving in, I was like, there are, there are 144,000 that are so close to trusting Christ, but they won't until the rapture happens. I wonder how massive of an explosion will result after the rapture for the gospel. And it just excites me. I think about all this stuff that we're doing. We're putting stuff in all this archives, all these different things, freely available online. I just wonder how many of those 144,000 may find the Bible website, may find the live streams, and use it in the tribulation to win people to Christ. I'm excited about that. Doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about today, except that we're just we're getting closer to the rapture. Know that, but don't give up. Don't throw your hands up and say, well, then I can't be godly in this wicked world. Titus says we should. Titus says that. That's very important to know. All right, so here's man's answer, and this is where it's going to get a little, okay, so just bear with me, a lot of illustration. Man's answer is a part of premise number one. Well, the universe came about of nothing. How many of you have heard this argument before? in a scholarly setting. <coughs> Good, almost all of you. The universe came about of nothing. All right, well, let's, let's take a look at that, right? We should be able to say, if the universe came about of nothing, we can observe that today, we can observe that same method of creation today, and all of the science that is a law can also support it. Let's talk about that for a moment. There's a difference between a law and a theory, okay? Let's just look at the theory of evolution, Theory of evolution is proposing that everything started on a very small molecular level and then it just advanced over time to where we are today. And there's no, there's no validity to that theory. Why? Because we can't see it observable today. I went to Bush Gardens. There are still you know, cute little apes over there. I'm not going to go back there and all of a sudden I see a little baby. Like, oh, this ape evolved. We would be able to see that in the process of just the observable universe. That's something like a theory. A law is something that is proven and cannot be disproven. We're going to study two of those laws today. The first and second law of thermodynamics. I know our heads just may have went poof. But bear with me. We've got good illustrations that I think will walk you through it. But those two laws, they cannot be changed. It's the equivalent of the law of gravity. If I said I identify as one who's not affected by gravity and jumped off of this podium, I'm not going to all of a sudden, oh, I'm floating around. There's a law. What comes up? <laughs> and a bigger fall for the big boy, right? That'd be a major problem. I can't change that. As a matter of fact, I can't get higher or in a different uh, setting or environment here on the earth that would change that gravity's impact on me. I'd have to have something different. Look at how a plane works today. You ever thought about how a plane works for a moment? That big old tube of metal, it's not light as a feather, and all the, it's flying 35,000 feet in the air? How is that? Well, there's, there's a force that's being exerted to combat gravity, and it, it just keeps going. But all of a sudden, if the pilot's like, you know what, we need to conserve fuel, and turns it off, gravity goes, hey, I'm winning. And that plane goes, gets further down to the ground. That's a law. That's the difference between a law and theory. We're not supposing that gravity is a theory. It's proven. So we should be able to take proven laws of the physical universe and apply them to man's response. Well, man's first response is that it all came from nothing. Let's take a look on the screen. To believe that space, time, and matter spontaneously came about and created everything is to believe that nothing created, and I changed this from something to everything. Okay, it's everything. We're talking all of it. 
not just some gases all of a sudden now, everything. The first law of thermodynamics, I know this is tiny, but let me, let me read it to you and you can write it down. This is a summary, okay? If we were to actually look it up in Wikipedia, it's like, ugh, ouch. That's why I don't like math, or excuse me, science. Matter can neither be created nor destroyed, but it can be transferred. So we would, we would automatically have a problem if we go, nothing created everything, that would imply that nothing all of a sudden brought in matter and energy, and now that can't be destroyed, it can only be transferred. So some would say, oh, well, that's the same thing with God, right? Because all of a sudden, he just created something. Yeah, but what's the difference? God, nothing. Do you see the difference? An infinite, all-powerful being that we have a hard time understanding, if we take out the word for a moment, or nothing. Which one is harder to believe? Well, the first law of thermodynamics tells us we have a major issue if we believe that nothing created something. It goes against a proven law. It's like saying gravity is not applicable. Spontaneous creation would conclude that nothing was able to create matter and energy, which is a clear violation of the first law of thermodynamics. There must be a creator being of infinite power and intelligence to create matter and energy. He also must have existed outside of and independent of space, matter, and time. Look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, the beginning of time, of which God existed outside of it. Then he acted and time began. Here's the next one that I want to spend a good portion of time on because I, I, I think it's a little hard to understand, but the illustration that M.J. Thierry put together I thought was just beautiful. Premise number two. So if we go on from, well, nothing created something, and it's like, okay, we have a problem with that. What's the next solution? Well, space, matter, and time have always existed. Focus on this for a moment have always existed. Now, that satisfies the first law of thermodynamics, that matter cannot be created nor destroyed, but it can be transferred. Okay, but could it have always existed? Well, we have a second law of thermodynamics, which is also a summary, so just bear with me here in a moment. In every energy transformation process, a certain amount of energy spent in the process goes into its waste form of heat. Let's talk about that for a moment. Let's say that I had a box up here, and this box had an engine in it, and outside of the box, there was a fuel supply. And I was able to connect that fuel supply to the engine, and I was able to, through that box, perfectly seal it so that no energy could escape, nothing. And I start the engine. What's going to happen to that box? It's going to blow up. Why? Because as energy is going in, and it's being um, excreted out, that also creates what? Energy in the form of heat. So all of a sudden now, this engine that's just going and going and going and going, if this were to be true, that space, matter, and time have always existed, that would imply that, there would, that energy would be lost. It would just disappear. No, but at some point, that pressure and that heat on that box is going to come down it's going to destroy the engine in there. It's going to overheat. And all of a sudden, all the motion stops. Because all of that energy that went in, it has to get out. Because the first law of thermodynamics says that energy can't be created nor destroyed. So it's transferred. And it's transferred into its waste form of heat. Are you still with me? So if we, if we apply this to the greater universe, okay, we would have to admit that the very fact that things are still moving... The universe is ever what? Expanding. That is a result of God's decision to create, and from that, everything was brought in. And as a result, we can't conclude that space, time, and matter has always existed and that it's confined, because then at some point, everything would stop. Otherwise, the first law of thermodynamics is not accurate. You understand the importance of that? We can't assume that everything has always been. That is something that I've not really heard recently. What I have heard recently is that we are in a parallel universe situation. Now, this came about in comic books back in the 40s. 
And it was just kind of a way to, you know, bring back characters that had a heroic death. And there's like a different version of them and all these different things. But it's now being pushed as something to be believed. That the fact that we are the perfect example of life and creation and all that must be the result of millions of failed attempts. That there's a version of you out there that never existed because you were just born in the wrong timeline. I think the reason why man keeps trying to explain the origin story of the world is because they're not willing to accept the fact that there is a God who created it all, and as a result, they as a part of that creation are accountable to him. If you think back to the first time that you did something wrong, (coughs) I can remember a specific time in my life (coughs) where I was asked a question by one of my teachers, and I knew that I had not done what they had asked me, but instead I lied, and I immediately felt the effects of that. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? You feel that, you feel guilt, and it's actually physical. Some people's faces turn red, you get like that hot sensation on your skin, because you know what you're doing is wrong. You already know that. It gets easier to do that as you continue to do it. I think the very fact that we have that condemnation when we do wrong is proof that we're accountable to somebody outside of ourselves. And, you know, thieves and criminals and all that kind of stuff that operate in darkness, they are deceiving themselves thinking the fact that they do these things without man's sight gets them escape from God's condemnation. Well, that's not true. I think all this that we're talking about here is just another way for man to try to explain out what God has already clearly shown. The second law of thermodynamics basically restricts the possibility of a perpetual motion machine, which is what premise two would conclude about the universe, that the universe has always been running. It's always been running, and there's, there's no movement of it, and it's, it's confined, and it's just always going. Well, at some point, everything would just explode, and you wouldn't have motion. But the fact that we still have motion, I think, is an important note. The universe is still expanding today, which is problematic for premise two because it supports the fact that there is still motion, which would not be possible if space, time, and matter always existed. Okay, we're moving on from the heavy science stuff, and we're going into question number two, at least the first part of it. How can evil and wickedness exist in a creation brought about by the work of a loving, holy, just, and righteous God? I want you to take your Bible and go to Titus chapter 1 with me for a moment. (coughs) Titus chapter 1, the first four verses there. We're going to look at some things on the screen, and then we're going to discuss about Titus 1. And we're also, we'll also look at uh, 1 Timothy as well. <clears throat> All right. We can see, and I'll explain more about this this evening, because there's, there's, there's a good baseline that we can start with. But primarily, <clears throat> we can see these three things to be true. God created man with a free will. Now, a lot of, I'm just going to talk about this for a moment. What a lot of doctrine says today is that only Adam and Eve had free will. And their decision to sin brought about the restriction of free will from man to only do evil. And they start to separate wills like this. They say there's the the, uh, creaturely will and there's the instinctual will. For example, an instinctual will would be you as an individual making a free decision. Like if we all, if, if I said, we got to go to lunch after this, which amen, we do, <laughs> we, all, we could all have different choices. Some of us could choose to go to a place like Chick-fil-A, it would be closed, but you could still go there, you know? Some would say PDQ, some would say Chili's, whatever, all these different things. There's options, and your ability to choose that shows that you have intrinsic will. Okay, the creaturely will is kind of like our little you know, pets at home. Can you think of your pet for a moment? That little dog, little foo-foo, little, little cat, little pest, excuse me, pet. Sorry. 
your cat or your dog does not wake up in the morning and think, I, Junie, hunger. She just knows hungry, food. Your dog or cat, oh, they love you dearly. But if you stopped feeding them, they'd leave because they need food to survive. They don't understand that I hunger, they just understand hunger. Now, we love our dogs, right? We love them. Our cats, too. You know, cat people are cat people, is what it is. There's love for you, it's all part of the family, God, amen. <clears throat> but what Calvinism and a lot of other theological systems say is that you and I only have creaturely will. That like the dog and cat, all we can do is sin. We don't have an awareness of ourselves in that way. We are restricted by it. We are so dead that we can't even respond to God's attempts to redeem us. Now, that would have to be proven out in Scripture, and it's not. I'll give you an example of that. Rome, excuse me, uh, uh, Genesis in the creation story, man was told, do whatever you want, but you can't eat that. Free will obviously exercised. Eve ate, Adam ate. They're now fallen. And as a result of that, man continually chose to do wicked. But then we have an example of Noah. Noah is an example of somebody who chose to do things correctly and as a result found grace and God used him to bring about the next attempt after the flood. We would have to say that Noah only had the creaturely will to do good. But man has free will. He can choose. The second point here is that God knew man would use his free will to sin. And you say, well, how is that? And that gets into a huge discussion. But it's really simple with point number three. God made provision for sin, and here's the important thing, before he created man. <clears throat> now look at Titus. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. Verse 2 is very important. In hope of what? Eternal life, which God, now stop for a minute and, and think Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, this God created the heaven and the earth. There's another description of him here that cannot lie, promised before the world began. The principle and concept of eternal life was guaranteed before in the beginning God created. This tells us that there is a preordained path of redemption that the Trinity had in mind before the creation of man. This answers the idea of evil in the world. Because from the atheistic point of view, they look at God and they say, because all of these characteristics of God, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, can be everywhere all at once, he chooses, out of his own evil desires, to let evil have its day. He actually chooses to redeem man before he created man by Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. But hath in due times, the times present Paul is speaking of now, <coughs> manifested his word through preaching. Oh my. Through what? Preaching? That's for the dumb dumb people. We need colleges and schools and degrees, paper and trees. That it says through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commitment of God our Savior, to Titus, mine own son, after the common faith. Grace, mercy, and here's the, I think, a very important structure peace from God, the Creator who also preordained the path of eternal life to be through Jesus, received by faith, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> Just a couple over to the left there. Verses 1 through 8. This kind of study that we're looking at right now is called a topical study. We're looking at the Scripture, which has a clear interpretation. For example, that was Paul's 
letter to Titus, and he's going to talk more specifically about things that were relevant to Titus, but we can, we can pull things from that and understand greater things about God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all Republicans. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but you know, for all men, for Republican kings, hang on, I'll just leave that, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. God's on the scene now in, in Paul's description here. Who? So now we're kind of going into a parenthesis, so to speak, or maybe like a semicolon. We're, we're going to say some things about this God who desires for us to pray for all men, supplications, all these different things. Who <coughs> will have all men to be saved? You can, you can guarantee that all here, it's got to mean all. Why? Verses 1 and 2. We're praying for what kind of men? All men. Even the ones who are in authority, which is implied that there are rulers who rule wickedly. Study the kings of Israel. Not good. A lot of bad. <clears throat> so that we can lead a peaceable and quiet life amongst all men. God wants all those men to come to salvation, come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified, mark this please, in due time. Meaning there is a progressive revelation Starting from Genesis 3.15 about the promise of the woman's seed destroying the serpent's seed. And that was rolled out like a red carpet. As it was pushed out, we have all these different markers on that carpet that lead up to the blood-stained cross of Calvary. The carpet now continues into the church age, and it will continue into the tribulation, and it will continue into the thousand-year reign, the great white throne judgment, and then that carpet ends. That story of history is over, and it has come to pass exactly as God has planned it to be. But there's a timeline, there's a process of things moving along to get to that point. And we know from other places... We're going to look at this last one here in 1 Peter. Look at this for a moment, 1 Peter. We know in other places that Jesus Christ was a part of that ordained plan. And it's come to, it's, it came to pass whether we wanted it to or not. I want you to think about this for a moment. I'm, I'm really running short on time, but think about this for a moment. Our friend Peter, the apostle. In Matthew chapter 16, they're in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asks them, and he says, who do men say that I am? And the apostles say, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say a prophet. John the Baptist had already lost his head at this point, and he was dead. That's what men say that they are. Well, Jesus turns the question around, and we start to see a change in his ministry. He says, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks for the group, and he says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Wow! That's the first time that they're putting this thing together. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Blessed art thou, among, or, uh, blessed art thou Simon Barjona, these things he revealed to you, not by flesh and blood, but by the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to build the next part off of this confession here. One verse later. A period of time has passed. We don't know how much. Maybe it was an afternoon. Maybe it was a week. I don't know. Jesus is now starting that third part of his ministry. I'm going to go to Calvary. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be uh, falsely con convicted, and I'm going to die. The same one who said, you are the Christ. Peter looked at Jesus and said, I will not allow it. Now, stop for a second. What is the significance of that? It's a significance that even though <coughs> Peter loved Jesus and admitted that he's the Messiah of Daniel, 
he still didn't want him to go to the cross and die. There was knowledge that was slowly being revealed. What did Jesus say? <laughs> Silly Peter, you'll learn. Now he said very strongly, get thee behind me, Satan. Do you see the significance of the devil's work now? Even he was able to use the scriptures to confuse these men of what Jesus was saying? The idea of stopping Christ going to the cross is a, the highest heresy. Yet, it was said by the same man who had the revelation of Christ's Messiahship revealed to him. I hope you're seeing the dots that are connected there. That we lack knowledge of God's, of, of, of God's plan. We don't think, oh, this is some movie studio thing. We're throwing these things together. God had a plan, and even back there in that time, they were not able to understand all of it, but it all came to pass, amen? Aren't you glad to be alive in the time you're alive? <laughs> that we have all of this now? Oh, man, God knew what he was doing, amen? Look, uh, continue here in verse, uh, excuse me, uh, 1 Peter 1, 18. <coughs> For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversion received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was, what does that say? Foreordained before God in the beginning, <laughs> created. Before the foundation of the world. What was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and see, uh, excuse me, and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God, seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. We're talking about discipleship now. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed. Remember we talked about that word corruptible? No, no, we actually talked about uncorruptible. Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. Do you see how significant the Bible is? And Peter's significance here is on the fact the Old Testament scriptures were already put together and that Christ is the living word, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is grass, amen? And the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever, amen? And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. You can close your Bibles. We'll have part two in the evening service. If you're here today, let's turn the lights back on. <coughs> if you're here today and you don't know where you're going to go when you die, we have to get that settled. We have to get that taken care of. This illustration, I think, is easy to demonstrate, but it may be hard for people to understand if we have this idea that sin, the thing that we all have, this hand representing you and me, if we think we can pay for this on our own. A lot of world religions teach this. Go to church, read your Bible, be a good person, and this will just naturally be paid because surely the opposite of bad is good. And yes, that is true. We're talking about perfection. If this hand represents you and me and this represents sin, we have to be sinless to get to heaven, not a better version of this sin. No sin at all. And there's a punishment for this. It's eternal death. Not just physical separation, but spiritual separation from God in hell. God loves us very much, but this sin must be paid. He is a righteous judge. It has to be paid. And it's not paid by your good works or my good works or good intentions or faithfulness. None of that. Without the shedding of blood, someone's got to die for this. There is no remission. There is no forgiveness for sin. This hand represents Jesus Christ foreordained before the foundation of the world. Amen? In God's love, he made a way before we were even spoken into existence. Do you realize the, the significance of that? And we see Jesus, who's fully God, fully man. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He offered him on the cross of Calvary. He took all of our sin, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Salvation was accomplished and made available on Calvary. It's applied to you 
when you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, paid for your sins by the shedding of His blood, was buried, rose again three days later, you put your trust in Him, you receive immediately salvation, you're justified, you're set apart, you have eternal life. What a tragedy it is that the atheist dies. What a tragedy it is when the hand of God is freely offered. For those of you that are here today, and that makes sense to you, would you put your trust in Jesus Christ right where you're sitting? In this very moment, you are saved. For those of us who have already believed, would we have a burden for those who have yet to come to faith in Christ? A lot of people in our community this week participated in Lent. They're already in the mindset of willing to give something up. You may know somebody like that. Can you find a way to present the gospel through that? There's no power in Lent. There's no power of eternal life there. The power of God is in the gospel. Amen? My fellow believers, be about lost souls. You may look at what we did today and say, how does this apply to winning someone to Christ? Someone believes these things. And we should have a defense ready to introduce them to our intellectualism. No. To Jesus Christ. Amen? Would you join me in prayer? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you trusted Christ for the first time in your life today, it made sense. Things clicked. You now know you're going to heaven. I'd like to pray for you. Would you raise your hand and let me know? Raising your hand doesn't save you. It just lets me know that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Apart from any good works that you could ever do, you now know you're going to heaven because you've trusted on Jesus. Anyone before we close? Heads are bowed and eyes are still closed. I pray you'll be here tonight. If you can be, I would greatly appreciate it. I think you'd benefit from it as well. We'll talk about why there's natural evil. We've kind of discussed moral evil, but we'll also look at the last two questions, which are brief but I think they'll be beneficial for you. Pray for one another. As the body of Christ, we have work to do. And let us be prepared to share the gospel with a lost and dying world. What a great opportunity we have, unique in this time that we're living. Father, bless us. Pray for the deacons meeting to follow here, and I thank you for the opportunity to be in this position. I pray, Lord, for all of those here today that have already believed on your Son, that they would equip themselves with the Word, put on the armor of God, and win souls to Christ. In Jesus' name I pray these things.